0: I'm your host, Eric Koslick, and I am super stoked that you're joining me for another one of our Barkhart Foundations episodes. If you're new to the podcast, these are the episodes where we take a deep dive into some aspect of cocktails or home bartending that will hopefully help you to understand and execute just a little better next time you're making drinks for friends. Just a quick note before we jump in here, we recently added a nifty little functionality to the podcast feed on modernbarcart.com that allows you to filter by our most popular episode types, essentially categories. So if you want to check out all of our Barcart Foundation's episodes, for example, or all of our interview episodes, head on over to modernbarcart.com forward slash podcast and you'll see some helpful buttons that will allow you to filter all of our episodes by type with a single click. It being the dog days of summer, this episode is going to focus on some lighter, batched cocktails you can make for groups of people, really harnessing the delicious energy of all the amazing fruits and herbs that are at their peak this time of year. The two styles we're going to focus on are the summer cup and, of course, the sangria, each of which have interesting origins and fascinating little historical tributaries to explore. This episode has a bunch of cocktail recipes, so we're just gonna jump right in here and take a trip back in time to the year 1823. 1823. In the United States, President James Monroe was busy with the Monroe Doctrine, which basically said we Americans were kinda done with the rest of the world. We were sick of all these stinking European wars and we intended not to get involved in any of it anymore. Arguably, this was the height of U.S. isolationism. We peaked pretty early, guys. Elsewhere around the world, 1823 was around the height of the British Empire, at least in terms of stability and commercial success. Colonial control of India, Australia, the Middle East, and parts of Africa was continually reinforced. and One result of this, at least for the British, was that trade flourished. This was the same era when the idea of the sun never setting on the British Empire was kind of popularized. So, when you've got a lot of trade happening, you've got a lot of money coming in, and when you've got a lot of money, you of course need a lot of bankers to keep track of it all. What do bankers enjoy eating for lunch? Oysters, obviously. And where do you go to grab some oysters if you're working at the Bank of England? in 1823 London. How about Pym's Oyster House? In 1823, Oyster House proprietor James Pym began making an intriguing little gin-based herbal liqueur and selling it as a digestive remedy out of his restaurant. It was served in small tankards known as Number One Cups. And so the name Pym's Number One Cup was born. By the 1850s, demand for this sweet herbal beverage was so high that Pym had to increase production, also releasing a number two and a number three recipe, which were pretty much identical to the number one cup, except that their base spirits were scotch and brandy, respectively. So we've got this tasty little liqueur gaining popularity in England around the same time as cocktails are really starting to capture the imagination of American drinkers, so it makes sense that the Brits would start trying to use Mr. Pym's creation as more than just a digestive remedy. This is where we run into the summer cup. Now in general, a summer cup is any long drink, possibly produced in a large batch that includes some alcohol, some fresh fruit and herbs, and a little sweetness. In many cases, we'll see recipes calling for things like lemonade, ginger ale, sparkling water, gin, or even champagne. The sweetness comes oftentimes from some cordial, like pims, classically, or perhaps from a syrup. And the common fruits and herbs used in a classic summer cup, this British invention, include mint, cucumber, strawberries, and apples. Things that the British had access to. Now, a basic recipe kind of like the most pared down version for a Pim's summer cup is as follows. Two ounces of Pim's number one, four ounces of sparkling lemonade or lemon-lime soda, and then your fruit and herb garnish. You know, a little bit of diced up strawberries and apples, some mint, and some sliced cucumber. And these garnishes can be, you know, kind of muddled into the cup from the bottom, or you can actually kind of build your garnish on the top if you want something a little bit more pretty. Sometimes this is built in a Collins glass with ice if you're making a single serving, and sometimes it's all thrown into a big old pitcher or punch bowl so that the ratios correspond to the recipe that I just listed. Now, the big questions when you're making a Pimm's cup or any summer cup, really, are what's the occasion and how boozy do you want it to be? These are important questions, especially in the summer. As a host, obviously, you're responsible for your guests, their health, and their safety. And the beauty of a big batched cocktail like this is that it really allows you to dial in your desired ABV pretty precisely. If the only source of alcohol in your summer cup is the pims, you're going to be looking at something that's roughly 8.25 alcohol by volume. And that's before things like dilution from ice or other non-alcoholic liquid ingredients come into play. So really... You know, after dilution, you're looking at something around five to seven percent, which is about as boozy as a normal beer and about half the strength of a glass of wine. Knowing that's your starting point, you can choose to go for a more middle of the road approach by adding something like champagne or sparkling wine into the mix. This would be called, you know, following the naming convention of what happens when you add champagne to something, a Pim's Royale, right? You have the Kier, which is. Um, the black currant liqueur, and then when you add the champagne to it, it becomes a Kir Royale. This kind of concept is something that you can apply across the cocktail canon. Add champagne, and it's basically a whatever that was, Royale. Fun little side note. If you're looking for a more potent brew, you know, something that's got definitely more of a kick, something moving in the direction of a batched cocktail, then you can always kind of crank it up and add some actual gin which is the base spirit used in Pimm's number one cup. And it also happens to pair well with cucumber and mint. So if you're making a summer cup, gin is a really logical spirit to use in that situation. One last fun fact I'll add about the Pimm's cup cocktail is its historical connection to the Wimbledon tennis tournament that's held each year in London. The Pimm's Cup is to Wimbledon as the Mint Julep is to the Kentucky Derby. Essentially, it's the traditional beverage that all the fancy rich people drink when they attend these sporting events. According to Wine Enthusiast Magazine, the first Pimm's bar at Wimbledon opened in 1971, and ever since, the cocktail has enjoyed wild popularity wherever Brits congregate to watch people bat a fuzzy ball over a net repeatedly. That said, Pimm's Cup isn't the only cup. There are other summer cups under the sun. In fact, some might argue that the sun never sets on summer cups. These days, you sort of see summer cups moving in one of two directions. You've got commercial and sort of generic options like the Austin's Summer Punch, which is available in the UK from Aldi, which is a pretty pervasive grocery chain. It's gaining traction here, at least in the eastern United States. And I'm honestly not sure if you can purchase it at U.S. Aldi locations. But one thing to note, if you happen to be in the U.K., is that it's apparently very similar to PIMS in flavor, but it only weighs in at about 17.5% alcohol by volume. So it's a lighter option than even the normal PIMS. Then on the other end of the spectrum, you've got more craft alternatives that emerge locally every once in a while if you're in a place where there's a kind of a strong distilling or cocktail tradition. Here in the DC area, we had a collaboration between Green Hat Gin and Capitoline Vermouth that was produced all the way through 2017, but I can't find any mention of it being produced this year, which is not to say that it won't come back. Here's a blurb from Green Hat's Summer Cup third annual release blog post on their website. Quote, we're the first commercial producers of a summer cup here in the United States. It took us a long time to get the recipe right, and it continues to be a crowd favorite and perfect patio drink companion. It combines our Navy Strength Gin with Capitoline White Vermouth and a blend of fruits, herbs, and spices that includes cucumbers, black tea, citrus zest, lemon balm, lavender, rose hips, and a few secrets. It's delightfully complex and refreshing with less sweetness than some other well-known cups out there. It's perfect when topped with cucumber, strawberries, and lemonade, end quote. Now I want to address at this point, a realization that most of you probably had at some point during the summer cup summary. And that realization is, hold on a minute summer cup is basically just sangria. In the sense that sangria is a light, fruit-infused summer drink that's occasionally served sparkling and has a number of different expressions, then yeah, summer cup and sangria look and act much the same. They're both great for parties or backyard barbecues and you can usually throw one together with a single trip to the grocery store or whatever you have lying around the house. One problem with sangria, though, is that historians and bartenders have a really difficult time agreeing on where it comes from. It emerged in its current, in its most evolved form, in the form that you would expect it at a restaurant, at the 1964 World's Fair in New York City where it was served as the official drink of the country of Spain. And this was kind of a PR move to help popularize Spanish wine, which at the time was really looked down upon as inferior. Ironically, this didn't really do much for the wine's reputation because it kind of still implied that the best way to drink Spanish wine was to mask it with, uh, with fruit and, and other stuff. So unfortunately, Spanish wines still haven't managed to you know, get up to the level of you know, French and Italian wines um, in today's market, but they do seem to dominate the sangria category. Let's look at the linguistic base for sangria, and that base is sanger or sangre, a word that means blood pretty much across all of the Romance languages. Clearly, this name refers to the red wine base that provides the color of this beverage, at least in most of its expressions, and this little etymological factoid connects us back with a much older drink that does have some traceable origins, although they uh, themselves are a little bit murky, and this drink is called the sangaree, S-A-N-G-A-R-E-E, sangaree. This proto cocktail holds down a really important part of the historical development of the cocktail. It's one of a few bridges between the age of punch in the 16 and 1700s and the age of individually served mixed drinks that started in the mid-1800s and extend up until now. One thing historians can generally agree upon is that the sangaree is basically a single serving punch. You've got alcohol from whatever wine you use. Most popularly, it was a port wine or sherry sangaree. Then you've got a little bit of sugar, a little bit of citrus if it was available, and a little grated nutmeg on top for your spice the sangria was usually a shaken cocktail and with that dilution from the ice and without the presence of a real robust spirit in many cases it would put you in the general vicinity of punch potency at least where abv is concerned and that is to say it was a fairly light sessionable drink that you could have either just by itself or you could kind of line them up one after another and not get hit as hard by the alcohol as you would drinking those classic boozy cocktails. We're going to link to a really great video in the show notes page where DC bartender Lucas Smith known for his work at Dram and Grain and Cotton and Reed Distillery makes a port wine sangaree and explains some of the nuances of this cocktail. So be sure to head on over to the show notes page at modernbarcart.com forward slash podcast and check it out. If you're interested in learning more about this nifty little drink, ultimately when it comes to sangrias and sangarees, what I'd like to do is sidestep all the controversy about the origins and the naming, and whether or not the sangaree has anything to do with sangria. I think it's clear that they are related, even if they're not blood relatives. See what I did there? Blood, sangria, get it? Really what I mean is that they both serve kind of the same function. They occupy that sessionable, easy living space where you can seek refreshment from some sort of alcohol chilled down, fortified by fruit, and tinged by whatever color is most appealing to the eyes and the palate. One last thing to note about sangria in terms of recent developments in our current world is that Spain and Portugal have managed to push a regulation through the European Union that grants them a sort of geographical dominion over sangria In the same way that France has champagne and Italy has Prosecco, you can't get those two products from other countries, or even regions outside of the regions where they're supposed to be made. In other words, if sangria comes from any country besides Spain or Portugal, they have to call it German-style sangria, for example, or some other type of sangria, none of which sound nearly appealing as the genuine article. So in one respect, it's great that Portugal and Spain have managed to safeguard another little bit of their cultural heritage and ensure that they continue to benefit from its popularity. But in another respect, I don't think most of us really want to go out and buy sangria from the store when it's so easy to make at home. If you are in the mood for sangria, here's an easy template that I like to use, and it's kind of a batched recipe. So all you have to do is, in a large pitcher combine the following. One bottle of fruity red wine. I like Grenache, which is the French word, or Garnacha, which is the Spanish word for the same grape. It's a juicy kind of very easy drinking soft red. Or alternatively, a nice red Zinfandel. You can get a lot of those from California. They're really beautiful. Next, you want a third of a bottle of brandy if you have access to it. This should not be your expensive cognac and it can be a fruit brandy if you've got one on hand. Then you want your kind of fruit that's floating in there and infusing all that nice flavor. I like to use about a half of an apple cubed. I tend to avoid the Granny Smiths here and go for some of the more kind of soft, fruity apples like a Cortland or a Pink Lady. Then you also can add about a half an orange, and I just kind of peel that and cut them into small little chunks. And then likewise, one peach or nectarine if you've got it on hand. Uh, I really love a nice ripe nectarine. I feel like it adds that beautiful little touch of acidity to a sangria that's really welcome, especially depending on what base wine you use. Then finally, you're gonna add about three tablespoons of your most flavorful sugar. If all you've got lying around the house is granulated sugar, that's fine. But I personally like raw cane sugar or even brown sugar, again, depending on the wine you choose. You know, let your taste buds be your guide. And then to chill it down, and for a little bit of dilution, I like to add one to two cups of ice and stir that in. And what you do is you just kind of combine these ingredients in the biggest container you have, and then you kind of pitcher them up in one or multiple pitchers for your guests to serve themselves from. The beauty of sangria is it's really not something that needs a lot of your attention. It's a very easy self-serve process. I hope this Bar Cart Foundations episode has given you a useful way to think about some of the easy-to-batch low ABV drinks out there especially the ones that have kind of interesting historical origins. And I also hope you'll tag us on Facebook or Instagram at Modern Bar Cart so that we can check out the summary creations that you make, whether you're hosting or just enjoying a long afternoon on the patio with a cold drink and a book. That's it for this episode, but we'll catch you next time on the Modern Bar Cart Podcast. you can always reach us by emailing podcast at modernbarcart.com if you're looking for cocktail or bartending advice, or if you're a pro who would like to pull up a mic and be interviewed for all to hear. Also, definitely follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Modern Bar Cart for cocktail porn, recipes, and entertaining tips. And keep an eye out for new product releases and special offers, which are happening all the time. We love our listeners, and we really enjoy giving you exclusive discounts and sneak peeks at our latest and greatest cocktail projects. This episode may be over, but for you, the mixological fun and adventures are just beginning. So remember, folks, drink responsibly and experiment boldly. This episode was made possible with editing and production assistance by Samantha Reed and some serious Wikipedia research by yours truly. This has been a Modern Bar Cart production, copyright 2018.